0: Hello, and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting, and we're talking about the future of housing. And I'm joined by Mr. Superprime, Daniel Daggers, founder, Daniel Daggers Real Estate. You're in London, which uh, you've been jet-setting around the world. No, people have got the wrong impression. People have got the wrong impression. (laughs) I don't know, every time I see you, you're in Dubai, you're in New York, but you're you're back on, on London soil at the minute. And it's, it's, what is it, two two years now since you launched the business? How's everything in that world? It's been obviously been a tough year for much of the agency sector, but you you seem to be doing pretty well. Thank you.
1: We've been up and running since March 2020. I think it was a month before lockdown. So um, everything changed, you know, rapidly. We were gearing up for office space and, you know, getting in and huddling down and, with our little cohort of merry men trying to make things happen. And then all of a sudden everything gets uh,
0: shut down and we're all at our dining tables. So uh, you set up a business at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. But you, you've actually managed to, you, you've, you've really, you've hit the lights out in terms of deals over that period. Yeah, performance, yeah. Um, And, and how have you managed to do that? So with, with everyone locked down, shut down, unable to get on planes, you're in the business of selling to ultra high net worth individuals, how the hell do you do that when people can't get on a plane and go and see properties? Well, it created a need market, not a want market. What does that mean? People people will be
1: rolling their eyes at that. What, what does, it, that what does that mean? it mean? It means that there was a necessity to move. So some families who have apartments realize very quickly that they needed gardens and therefore, come on,
0: Daniel. Your your clients are all people that need another home, are they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> Look, our first our first big super prime deal was a client of mine who was on a boat in uh, in the Atlantic, and she said to she she said to me, "Listen, I need a house. Like, I need to get going. I've got a small apartment. Yeah, and uh, and I know I'm going to be locked down with my five children. I need to get the frigging hell out of my apartment. <laughs> uh, find me a house." And she made a commitment for. You know well over a million pounds a year in rent on my say so after you know video calls and and uh and and that was a that was a need moment so anyone who's in the marketplace in the super prime sector there aren't any needs they're just wants generally yeah? yeah we would like we would want a nice apartment in central london and we would like a penthouse and we would like you know whatever it may be but this market was totally different so whilst 85% of the market shut down, the 15% that were there that remained mm. were very serious.
0: Yeah, so well, it must have been. You've done, what, £250 million of deals during COVID? Yeah. I mean, let, let's step back a second because a lot of people will have seen the press coverage a while back when you left night Frank. I mean, let, let's scratch below the surface a little bit because you're known in the market for being the king of social, one of these guys that that foresaw... The use of Instagram and social media a long time before most of of the property market. But what's the real Daniel Daggers? How, how did you? Where did you start out? How did you get into Night Frank? And, and and tell us a little bit about that that background for people sure. who might not know it. Okay. Well, my background is very similar to
1: probably the vast majority of estate agents. You know, I started working when I was seventeen. I was I performed poorly at school. Uh, I wasn't academic. I struggled. Uh, I wanted to be a professional footballer like most young kids. That didn't happen either because I wasn't good enough. Um, I went to study surveying and realised that Spurs. I could, yeah. Well, I think I've got more <laughs> chance of getting into my own team now, Arsenal, than than, than Spurs. Doesn't say much, sadly. And I, I, uh, I ended up. Uh, I was studying surveying and I didn't. I'm sorry for any of this surveyors here listening but i didn't find it interesting enough for me and uh that's I, all right we'll, we'll cut that out okay you. all right thanks no, no, we're, um, not, we're not going to cut that out <laughs> and i uh i got a job working at vickers and company which is a small resi estate agency in maida and i got plonked uh, at the window i was 17 and a half And Stephen Vickers- Is that because you're so good looking or? Well, that's what I tell everybody. You know, they wanted to attract more people into the office. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure it worked. Um, Profits uh, slumped. Um, And I started there when I was a kid and Stephen Vickers, God bless him because he passed away not long ago, gave me my opportunity. And I sat there for 10 years figuring out the estate agency business. I, I saw the internet come along and I realized how important it was and I remember vividly what uh, the owners of the businesses were thinking about, whether or not they need to set up a website for foreign buyers, which they thought was just bonkers. Who's yeah. going to do that? And then in 2007, just before uh, the financial crisis, I asked them for equity in the business. And they said that they, they would, you know, they kicked me down the road a little bit. And at that point, I saw Knight Frank and Savills and the big conglomerates really start making in, inroads. I thought to myself, well, they're talking about globalisation, they're talking about having multiple offices in, um, in London, and they're taking up market share. So yeah. if I'm going to make a move, let's look at... You know, they were courting me, and I ended up moving tonight, Frank, and I had a choice. This was November 2007. I had a choice if I wanted to start in the prime market, so that's one to £4 million, or in the super prime market, so that's 4 to £10 million at the time. And I remember saying to myself, well, I think the rich are going to outperform the market here and come back in greater force and quicker. So I'll try my luck at the top end of the market.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that was uh, 2007. And uh, what then happened at night, Frank? Because people saw a bit of a bust up in the press, looked a little bit messy to some. What really happened? Well, I'm under NDA, so
1: I can't really talk about it, which is frustrating, uh, and that should tell you quite a bit. If I could talk about it, I would. But when you look back on the iPhone, what what, what do you reflect on the business? I think it's an incredible business. I think particularly the time that I was working in the business, it was really interesting to see globalization take place within a corporate structure and how they manage that process and how you create market-leading positioning which is what you guys do, Mm. to really buy the pool of potential sellers and and buyers. And dealing with the new ultra high net worth community that was coming in, you know, there was a lot of oligarchs and one high part was coming on the scene, which set the benchmark for super prime and ended up creating a super prime market globally. So watching that all take place from partially from the St. John's Wood office in North London and then moving into central London was really fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and when you look at the market now, how has it all shifted since the financial crisis? We've obviously had, what, two recessions and a Brexit mm. over that 12-, 13-, 14-year period. Does it feel like 2008, 2009, or, or are we absolutely eons away from that? There are, there
1: are certain elements that replicate what happened in oh seven, oh eight, which is wealthy people have beautiful homes, and they don't need to sell it because the cost of debt is tiny, and many of these people have inherited these assets, and therefore there isn't a need to sell. As an agent, we like needs. We might not talk about it, but we like needs because we know that we're
0: going to be selling something or renting something. Mm. And, that, so, and that's what you know. A lot of a lot of investors in in social housing, build to rent, they're driven by need. They think, well, we're going to invest in single family housing because there's lots of families want housing, which is is obviously very different from, from your part of the universe. Yes, it's super different. I think the biggest difference, which I recognized very
1: quickly about six years ago, was the profile of potential buyers and big tenants. Okay. The profile changed. I was so different as a I would say that I was a mixed-race Jewish boy. I wasn't meeting many young, mixed-race Jewish people buying 20, 30, 40, 50 million pound homes. You know, they were Russian or from the Eastern European states, from the US a little bit, from India, from the Middle East. And I stood out like a sore thumb. Also within the property sector itself, which actually isn't something very pleasant that sits with me because um, I think our industry needs a massive amount of reform. But... If we start looking at the customer base i remember producing a piece of content for instagram where i where i said look the average age of buyers in the super prime sector have come down i'm working with people in their mid-30s the average age of buyers in the super prime sector was in their mid-30s and i thought that was fascinating because people in their mid-30s think very differently you know and i was also noticing how some of my friends, because I was late 30s at the time, were going against the grain of traditionalism. Whilst their parents grew up in the Mecca of St. John's Wood for the Jewish community, their kids were looking at moving to Little Venice in Queen's Park and Primrose Hill and these other neighbourhoods that mm. that weren't where the traditionalists wanted to be. Yeah, And that wasn't just a pattern for young Jewish people. It was a pattern for my Middle Eastern client base where I started to see some of the... Uh, all family members I do business with in Chilton Firehouse. right? Yep. They yep. would never have been in Marlebone 10 years ago. It would have been Knightsbridge, um, Belgravia. Mm. So I noticed these small elements because I'm a people person and I love analysing and getting this information from practical living. And everything was changing. And with the concentration of social now, where we have more insight to how other people live, people started to focus on things
0: that they didn't even know about before so what what sort of things because i guess typically when people think about the super prime market they think about shakes turning up in orange lambos outside harrods and, and looking at flats around there that are within five minutes walk mm-hmm. you know if we're being slightly slightly cliched about it
1: look the middle east the market in terms of buyers have been shallow their performance has been shallow over the past five
0: years. But I think that we will see more activity for sure during the
1: next five to 10 years.
0: What about the Chinese market? Because that's obviously been a huge driver of real estate globally. Mm -hmm. Um, There've been a few interesting occurrences recently with with the Chinese government getting involved and shutting down some of these companies yep. that have been out there, like Dalian Wanda and, and others that have been... Oh, even bit, bigger than that, Alibaba, you know, what what's with, with Jack Ma and oh, yeah. other things. Yeah, that was an expensive speech, wasn't it, um, that he made. But I guess I'm interested in the different demographics and the different needs from from different sorts of clients. So if you're servicing rich Russians or Eastern Europeans What are the things that they want different, or what are the things that they want done differently from the Middle Easterns, from the Far Eastern, from the Chinese and the Singaporeans? And how is the market evolving at different paces for those markets, for those different sub markets?
1: All right, well, well, first and foremost, we have to take our estate agency slash development hat slash professional services hat off and try and adopt a huge amount of empathy to understand what the customer is looking for, how they feel, what are they missing, what do they want to replicate from their home, where they come from yeah, right yeah now if you understand that, it puts you in a very good position to be ahead of the curve and that 's something that i 've thankfully because of my creative nature have been able to see. before others but for instance the impact the russian community had and the oligarchs had on london was massive the forecast that i have is the impact the chinese community is going to have on london is going to be massive times two Mm. and i also foresee a huge amount of american wealth coming to london and their needs and wants and desires are very different from one another
0: Mm.
1: in some instances they're very similar i want to be close to central london where i can jump into annabelle's and lulu's and all the private members clubs, yeah, but there are wider reasons
0: for people to buy property. Well, that's it. And I think that's one of the key things that has shifted over those last 15 years, This the commoditization of residential real estate as that safest as houses, as, as that backstop gold standard for people to store capital.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that the super prime sector is a place where you make money. I think people recognize that from a customer base, unless you're a property developer and you're going to build out a scheme, which is a bit like a beehive and create this vibe where people come towards you and gravitate towards you in a, in a location that hasn't really achieved premiums, but have many reasons why they should. Yeah. The buyer of this real estate, I don't think they're looking at it from a place of, oh, we're going to make money out of this acquisition. Okay, my clients are retail clients. They want to buy for themselves. They want to enjoy the time that they spend in these in these homes. Mm. But in many instances, they're not looking at it going, "Are we going to make money out of this?"
0: Yeah, it's no, more it's uh, yeah. more a store of value. Yeah, that, that that's fair. That's fair. So, I mean, looking at the market, then, what have been some of the developments over recent years that that have got you excited? You you sold a home in Clarges, didn't you? Uh, not so long ago, yes, in I did, Mayfair, yeah. for for thirty two and a half million. Pounds overlooking Green Park and Buckingham Palace. I mean, that, I mean that's obviously been one of the you know one of the, the the great developments over recent years. But what other things have caught your eye? What other things do you think have moved the market in some fashion, if any? Well, first and
1: foremost, one high park created the super prime market, and then beyond that, we've seen developments come in, and some have outperformed others. I'm fond of a couple. I'm less fond of others. I would like developers to be braver. What do you mean by that? The traditionalists want you to build a beautiful scheme that doesn't really offend anybody, but isn't poignant. Okay, you walk in, and the and a lot of these developments they look remarkably similar. Mm. Okay, is that if, I
0: mean, is that to do with planning, or is that just a lack of ambition?
1: I don't think it's a lack of ambition. I do think that it's just risk. Right, there's a, there's a lot of money at play when you build a super prime scheme, is billion, you know, half a billion pound investment or whatever it may be sometimes even more than that it's simple things if we know that the average super prime buyer now sits between the age of 30 and 40 yeah. there is little point in putting a michelangelo piece on the wall in front of the main front door entrance okay because the 30 and 40 year old is less interested than the 50 and 60 year old in that kind of artwork mm. okay they want to see something much more contemporary that resonates with them a set of benchmark it says, ah, oh, it creates an emotional connectivity point. So not some NFT art. Yeah, stick some NFT art. Listen, this is what's <laughs> going to happen. It's a really good point, and it's a very valuable point. We
0: are seeing a massive change in wealth creation. If you don't know what NFT art is, listeners, Google it, because it would take too long to explain.
1: Yeah, and it would actually take a long time to uh, <laughs> to read through it. But
0: um, Yeah, but the, the joke will become clear pretty soon. Yeah, a bit like social. Yeah. Well, actually, look, let, let's move on to social, because I think this sort of links to your point that the customer is changing the conversation's changing the way we deliver that conversation has to change so i i guess we can we can move on to how you if, if the chinese market's going to be all of london mm-hmm. uh soon it does beg the question how are you going to reach them because a lot of those guys can't access your social channels daniel um, uh, a lot of them can't but they don't need to use me we need to be considered to
1: use them i need to use the right conduits yeah so we this is what it's all followers. about, and the, the idea of me me being able to reach every ultra high net worth is is ridiculous. Mm. You got you got what thirty five thousand odd followers. You got a fair few uh, seventy thousand over all digital channels, but that's important because it benefits my clients when I'm marketing their property, right? Yeah.
0: So let's talk about social then, yeah. Because I mean, I, I think you know we're a similar age, similar mindset. I, I cut my teeth in, in the music industry creating digital platforms in festivals. So that's what I was doing kind of 18, 19 years ago, long before I got drawn into real estate and, mm-hmm. and doing all this. But I, and I'm very much with you on that need to, to focus digitally, but tell us about how you see all of this disrupting the agency model, disrupting property, disrupting current and long-standing business models. Because lots of people are pretty fearful Others are a bit dismissive. Others think, oh, you know, just, you know, just a show station pictures. Who cares? That is the view of some people. Well, if I gave everybody the
1: opportunity, or if you gave, I should say, everybody the opportunity to advertise in the yep. local newspaper for free every day, would you choose to do that? Um, probably not anymore. Okay, let's do another one. Uh, evening standard, the Homes and Property Supplement. Any of these. If I said to you, you can advertise in these for free every day and it'll hit a thousand people,
0: two thousand people, five hundred thousand people, would you do it? Yeah, probably. I'm sure. Yeah. So having my mug over the standard would, would be do wonders for their ad revenue. (laughs) It's more about getting the message to to the customer. The customer's on digital channels, however
1: anyone wants to look at it. Anyone who's listening to this is listening to this on a digital channel, okay? Or they'll find it on a digital channel. And therefore if you are not marketing your business or whatever it is you're selling or your services, whether it be a product or services I should say, if you don't have any influence over
0: digital channels and you can't get your message over, then you are blind to your potential audience. Absolutely. And just to say anybody listening to this that's got some friends, send us to your friends and have them, <laughs> have them subscribe to PropCast by searching PropCast on Apple and Spotify. And we'll go back now to Daniel Daggers. Wow. Is that a sponsored
1: <laughs> ad? Is that Can you do a sponsored ad on your own ad? We I'm can
0: not do, entirely sure. We can do. We, can, we, <laughs> we, we should do, actually. We should start to, to be a bit more commercial with these. We've been running these podcasts now for, for three and a half years. We do it for the good of the sector just so we can get and also just so we can get really fascinating people to talk to but but you would and no, also you, so you, people get to know who you are well yeah right? absolutely, absolutely I, I mean but if, I'm, if I'm going to
1: post this on my digital channels you're going to get another 70,000 people that may not know who you are and then five of them may choose to do business with you right
0: well, yeah, I mean, they'll realise there's, there's another good-looking Jewish bloke in the property there, but, <laughs> but, but, but um, you've got nicer eyes. But, than you. but, you, but you were talking about <laughs> understanding that customer. So again, essentially, what we're talking about is is a limitless window display onto the universe. Yep, that's pretty accurate. So the, the problem, though. So how do you filter that? Because I you know, I look at things like the music industry now where you can listen to anything that's ever been created pretty much. You go onto Spotify, mm-hmm. Apple, but how do you know what's hot and what's not? So if where you're, you have know, got a relatively niche market, a tiny market, a tiny, tiny universe of people that are actually gonna buy this. Kit. That's fine. So why would you want to just kick it all out into the social sphere? How does that help your customer? How does it help the customer? Well, the
1: ultra high net worth is on digital channels. And if I'm known as someone who sells the most expensive real estate on the planet, if I get one piece of content to one person, they might share it to their friend who is most likely going to be another ultra high net worth because we all sort of live and work in packs. And that's how you get a duplication of interested parties into your asset who can afford it. So I was pretty aware, probably I would say two years into my social journey that I needed to be a focal point a place of gravity for the sector that I worked in, hence the whole Mister Super Prime thing.
0: Yeah, does it put some people off? Do some people think, you know, actually, we don't want you know some celeb agent all over our property? We prefer discretion. So, you as a business, how do you split your focus between the the sort of discretion that that the ultra high net worths will often demand mm-hmm. versus that need for a bit of showbiz and a bit of glitz that that those sorts of folk also as you very rightly say, also want when they're at Annabelle's or wherever.
1: Sure. I mean, look, let's look at a slightly different way. Everyone has an opportunity to produce content now. So anyone could put a message out into the internet. Anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. okay. But it's about
0: about authenticity and about yeah. I think it's about, well,
1: it's the risk, right? It's the risk that people are concerned about. Yeah, it's the risk. Oh, if this piece of information gets out into the public domain, am I happy about that? Yeah. Now, everybody can produce a piece of content to get out into the public domain. It's the person you choose is the person who understands how to manage that and make sure it doesn't get in the public domain and that you get your asset in front of the right people in the quietest way possible using the least amount of people possible mm. so that no one or a small amount of people can produce potentially produce a piece of content for digital channels. Yeah. And I understand how to navigate that very well. In fact, we built technology for it to protect our clients. I mean, I'm selling a 110 million pound home at the moment, but no one knows anything about it. We we're involved with something
0: else, well over 100 million, but no one knows that we were involved with it. So, talk us through that because that, that sounds a little bit paradoxical. Where one side we're talking about having 70,000 followers on your socials, but you're then saying, well, I've got a 100 million pound property that, mm-hmm. that I don't want to share any details about. So, why would you not just. You know, if you've got all these followers, why not put the information out there? Is it... Well, because, because you... Because you there's, want...
1: there's different strategies for clients. Yeah. Okay?
0: And the freedom of information now is very hard to keep secrets. Well, this but, is the thing. So how how does a state agency have a future when everyone has access to all the data. Well, I mean, you know, what's healthier having an individual sell your asset and pick and choose who
1: we want to give that information to and look after you and one single point of contact who is totally accountable to your wants and needs or do you want to go to a big business that has to distribute the information to get more distribution, right? So, this is the challenge of our sector, it's also the challenge of the business model currently in the UK. It's not necessarily as much of a challenge anywhere else around the world, in my
0: eyes. And why do you think that is? Just because other countries are are more digitally literate than we are? Um, Yes, I
1: think they've tried things. I think that uh, it's funny how Brits look down their nose at the Americans. I find it remarkable because they have the biggest marketplace that speaks the same language as us. Who are most similar to the Brits mm. however you want to look at it yeah and they choose ex business models after iterating and iterating and iterating and iterating because they have so many more transactions so they tend to find the most efficient business model to service the customer ahead of anyone else except mm. for China let's say because they have a mass population huge
0: population that they can try it on and the transaction costs tend to be quite higher in the states so there 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 are quite well, not substantial differences, but there are, there are some differences to the mechanics of things. Buying there are, agents but they, are also a spend,
1: they also spend a lot more money on marketing. Definitely. Yeah. Like a hell of a lot more. So if you assess the transaction volumes at the super prime sector or the prime sector in the US, you'll find that most of the deals are not double-ended. That's how they call it in the US where an agent represents the seller and the buyer and therefore the 5 or 6% is uh, is kept by a single party. Yeah. In most instances and I think this is going to happen across the planet, the fee whatever the fee is, 5 or 6% is split with the agent representing the buyer and the agent representing the seller. Yeah. Actually in the US there are a lot more cases of an agent who double ends a deal and keeps all the fees to themselves being sued for misrepresentation. So what this is creating is a marketplace where everyone has to work collaboratively with one another. Yeah, And then what happens is you have, rather than have just two or three or one person selling your property, you have 50,000 or
0: five. Because everyone's incentivized for a piece of the pie.
1: Correct. And I'm not going to be the person who's going to get a piece of information to everybody, am I? That That would be a foolish thing to think. But I think what it will boil down to is how good is your agent at representing you in the marketplace? How good are they at showing real estate? Because that's a skill that we don't get taught here or anywhere. And how well are you at negotiating? And what's your track record like? Because when I tell a client or tell another buyer if they've got interest in our property that we have interest elsewhere, they know I mean business because... I, uh, I've, I've played this game for a long time and people know that when i say something i mean it these
0: are the differentiating factors now for agents moving forward and that collaborative approach that you speak of that that's not really in the dna of a lot of the residential
1: because it doesn't
0: lie yeah. it, it's exactly right i mean you hit the nail on the head it
1: doesn't fall in line with the business model that has been created in the uk And the business model doesn't suit the customer, whichever way you look at it. It doesn't suit the buyer because the buyer has to register with 15 different companies to buy a piece of real estate Mm. and therefore get multiple pieces of the same piece of information from multiple different people when they only want to speak to one and they only want to build a rapport with one and they only want to have one person accountable for their wants and needs. Mm. And then if you look at the flip side, if an agency doesn't work collaboratively, they won't give 100% of the market. They'll give you what they can give you, but they won't give you everything. Mm. And therefore, it takes longer for you to sell. And then you have less people interested in your property. And therefore, you won't command the premium that you want.
0: And are properties taking longer to sell than than they used to? What's the average time it takes to sell a super prime property? In London now, it's over a year. And what's your average as a business? Oh, I haven't looked at it. I mean, we've sold, we sold one
1: property in 108 days where the local market had previously performed, it would take 850 days, I think it was. Wow. And that's because we worked in a collaborative fashion and built beautiful digital products for a client's home. So it presented extremely well
0: and got the most amount of engagement. And why are you able to do that and, and, and other businesses aren't? I mean, it's not. Is it that difficult? They're
1: choosing not to. Mm.
0: But I do think that
1: the big corporates are going to struggle from a... I mean, I had a really fascinating chat with with an agent. I've got a huge amount of admiration for the other agents in my sector and I want everyone to win. But I had a nice chat with a guy who runs a boutique estate agency and they're very, very phenomenally successful, actually. And he said to me, so Danny, because he calls me Danny, says, Danny, I mean you know, you bringing properties to the market and then giving other agents access to it almost immediately for their buyers and then giving them fees, you're not going to be able to grow quickly because it's going to kill your your margins. And I said, I don't believe that's the case. And that's not my business model because actually what we do and how we built the business and created this platform is to support the seller. It's not about my margins. It's about doing the best thing for the client. And if we continue to
0: do that, our business will grow. So it's a very, very different way of doing business. So we've talked a lot about data and and, and digital and understanding the audience, but what else do you think some of the, the incumbents need to learn? And you've got you've got quite an interesting team in house. You've you've got mm-hmm. this this data supremo called Jawad that that you speak very fondly of, who's actually also a techno DJ, according to your website, <laughs> uh, which is uh, quite interesting, I guess, <laughs> tapping into that modernity that you speak of Um, our our whatsapp group is called the avengers because we all
1: feel slightly unusual in our world jared is a 21 year old economic grad with a first and he joined us and he is our data analyst he's great he's from sort of listen grove way and he's a boy who really wants to Show that someone from his ethnicity and from his background, which is quite similar to mine, in fact, can go and be fabulous at what he does and have a wonderful life. So we want to support him doing that. We've also got Elliot, who um, was the head of digital for Night Frank. He came on board. I think he was the third employee. But our second employee was Sasha. Sasha. And Sasha is 24, I think. She is from Estonia. She's the DJ. Oh, she's, she's DJ. the edgy queen of our office. She's too cool. I feel really old and lethargic around her. I was going <laughs> to say you're not really not doing the music on your no. Uh, video. No, she has a, she has a lot of choice over the music. But the vi- the music for the video is an interesting point, is because we're targeting people who we think are the potential buyers. So we don't use necessarily Pavarotti. We use. Different musicians for different videos, which we think will be in line with a potential buyer. But Sasha's awesome. She's a fashionista, and uh, she was the second employee. She also won an award uh, as a videographer from Kodak, so she's also got a high skill set.
0: And and because a lot of the companies that you know, a lot of the big firms talk about diversity, they talk about all of these things, and and we have a lot of conversations on on the podcast about it, but. From your perspective as an entrepreneur that's worked in big agency, that's now growing your own big agency, what are some of the things that that people listening to this might want to do differently or might want to feed back into their businesses? What can people learn? Everything. I I think we need a total upheaval of the real estate sector
1: here because... There is no diversity at the top end of the real estate market in, uh, in the UK, in central London, in the prime markets or super prime markets. I very rarely see women, even though the women that do work in the super prime markets tend to be the most powerful and the best at what they do. I don't see any black faces or brown faces. I very see a Muslim person at the top end of any of these businesses. And I really struggle with this. It's something that I come from a different economic background to most people that I do business with. And I see myself as mixed race and I feel very sensitive about this. I think that the big businesses have a very difficult next five to ten years because whilst they are trying to champion diversity and I would love to support them to do that. The middle part of their business slash top part of their business doesn't have any diversity And therefore, it's going to take two, three, five, ten years for the diverse group of people to get to the top. And the question mark is whether or not they're going to be allowed to, whether or not they're good enough. And it's going to take a long time. I don't think it's easy to hire. So there's a part of me that has a huge amount of empathy for the big organizations. But to to a certain extent, they put themselves in this position. Mm.
0: Well, look, let's end on a high let's end on a positive so as we as we move into the final quarter of of 2021 and and we 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 look into 2022 where where are you expecting the market to go what 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 are some of the things that people watching the the residential sphere can can hope for can look to
1: i think we're going to see hyperinflation for best-in-class assets Uh, the difficulty is when you're a seller you think your property is best in class regardless of what it is, okay? So having a true understanding of where your property sits in the market is going to be vitally important. I think certain neighbourhoods like Bayswater, Hyde Park, Labrick Grove, Westbourne Grove, Fitzrovia are going to outperform other golden postcodes like Knightsbridge, Belgravia, Chelsea. I think... Why is that? Just because there's more growth growth potential
0: yeah there's more growth there i think fantastic schemes like the wiley project in in bayswater queensway and i guess there's there's a lot of opportunities for those places to move as well where, where
1: you see a high street that is underperforming that isn't very nice and a lot of beautiful architecture and great transport facilities and gardens nearby or communal gardens or parks you've got opportunity to increase value yeah and what you need is this sort of big developer to come in and build something fabulous it will be perceived as expensive in the beginning and then it will have a huge impact on the local neighborhood and their values and i think that's what you're seeing in bayswater right now yeah yeah
0: what else so i interrupt you you were gonna say i I think the
1: golden Postcodes are going to struggle a bit i did a post on instagram actually where i said at the beginning of corona or covid whatever you want to call it I said, it's all about lifestyle, not lifestyle. We've been banging on about lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. We're near a high street, we're near the park. We'll do this, we'll do that for Mm. you and so on and so on. But actually living in your home, how do you live? How do you wanna choose to live in the home? And I think there's a, you can see, and we're gonna do some work from a data perspective with Jawad, how tall, thin houses are underperforming duplexes and wider homes. I did another piece. I think I wrote about it on LinkedIn where at the beginning of COVID, I was like, "Mm, I think people are going to be buying wider houses, bigger floor plates. Where do we see that architecture available in London? Uh, That's pretty easy. That's Holland Park, Notting Hill, St. John's Wood and Hampstead. And lo and behold, all those markets have outperformed Mayfair, Marlebone, Knightsbridge Mm. uh, and Belgravia. And this is all down to what the customer wants as well as what the big developers are building. Mm. Everything in between is gonna struggle.
0: Mm. So what would your advice be for, for people looking to get into this market over the next 12 months? If you're, if you're what, a developer- developers or agents, sorry? Uh, but developers, developers.
1: My advice would be consider who the customers are over the next five years, because it's changing drastically. Don't just build because you think that there's a margin there you really do have to understand where things are going. I want to be historically correct. I'm happy to call the market beforehand because I want people like you to come to me and say, hey, Daniel, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Because historically I've been accurate. And this is all about people.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll have to have to have a bit of a play with your own data platform over the coming months. It'd be great to, to have a bit of a deep dive into that in the new year and and really look at some of those trends as we move into into 2022 but let's leave it there fantastic conversation thank you very much for coming in so really good to have you here IRL real life none of this panting around over zoom that I think we're all a bit <laughs> tired about so it's so yeah. great to have you in in the space uh, and, and good to yeah good to be able to chat about the market and, and go into some some real depth about What you're seeing, and I think there'll be a a lot of people that will be touched by a lot of what you've said, and and certainly anybody listening to this that wants to suggest other guests that we can have on here that that do come from different backgrounds, it's something I'm very conscious of, and you know we've tried to tackle some 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 pretty big taboos on this podcast over over the time that we've been running it on, on mental health and well-being and. And, and diversity, but, yeah. but we could always do more. So, very, very interesting hearing from anyone listening to this. And, and obviously, yeah, if you you know anyone, Daniel, that you want to suggest that we should talk to, then delighted to hear from them. But thank you to to Daniel Daggers. Please do follow him on on Twitter, on on Instagram, on LinkedIn. If you're not one of the seventy thousand people already there, <laughs> uh, you, you probably should be. Um, but thank you very much to everyone for listening. We'll be back again very soon. And, and do get in touch with us via. Uh, any means necessary, do continue to click on propertyweek.com for your property news and do subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and any other podcast platform. I've been Andrew Teacher from Black Sock Consulting. Thank you very much.